the men in the leadership group have been uh, talking about things that would add cohesion to Lion and Lamb, that would enable us to function more biblically, uh, more as an integral unit, uh, more as the Bible would have us function as a body. And so we decided to have uh, a whole month of teaching on the subject of the life of the body in different aspects. Uh, It's been entitled, Finding Your Niche. Uh, And so for the next four weeks, and then maybe some residual things later, uh, we're going to be talking about different aspects of the body and how it can function, how it should function if you want to follow the biblical model and in a number of different areas from four different men. Uh, And so today, what we would like to address is the whole issue of serving. Um, He came up with the title of How's Your Serve, you know, not to be cute necessarily, but just to think about what are the things that I should be focusing on in this area. Should I be? Uh, what does the Word of God tell us about service to others? You know, a lot of us easily could think, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a, a real believer. Uh, I go to church and I, I pay attention, I take notes. You know, maybe I, uh, you know, I give a little bit or maybe even to other charities. Uh, I'm civil to my family and polite to friends. And, you know, well, why should I do any more? I mean, isn't this whole service thing another name for legalism, like salvation by works? I mean, after all, Paul said, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. And that's true, very true. Our salvation is not a result of our works. But Paul continued in the very next verse, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Good works should be a part of our walk. And that's out of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. In fact, James, the brother of Christ, declared that if we're going to have a saving faith, serving others may very well be an essential part of that faith. In James 2, he says this, What does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but has not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. But you do not give them those things which are needful for the body. What does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And I don't think James was teaching salvation by works here. 
I was, I think he was just simply saying, you can say you've got all the faith in the world, but if it's not manifested in some way, you may be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Um, So, okay, I got to have some works, some service. But just how important is this serving thing with all the other busyness of life? I mean, I got places to go, things to do, people to see, right? Well, let's take a look at what Jesus thought about this. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, look at Matthew 22, starting at verse 34. Leading into this, he's being questioned by the you know, the, uh, the religious leaders of that time. And when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together and wanting to test Jesus, speaking in redundant terms, a low-life lawyer, asked him a question. <laughs> Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend, and the King James says, hang the law, all the law, and the prophets. In other words, all the commandments and all the, 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 the works, the writings of the prophets in our Bible are based upon and follow after loving God and loving your neighbor. Now, Jesus could have easily responded by answering the question simply with the first imperative, love God. But he didn't. I think that's significant. He intentionally added, love your neighbor, as the second part of the answer to the question, which is the great commandment. The primacy of serving was not lost on the Apostle Paul, who seemed to dwell on this point. You see, first of all, Paul understood what Jesus taught about loving a neighbor as yourself. When Paul spoke to husbands about their wives. He recognized a basic aspect of our nature, really all of our nature. He said in Ephesians 5, 28, So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. In other words, at some level or another, all of us here look out for number one. We tend to take care of ourselves out of a self-interest, hopefully healthy, which enables us each to function to enjoy our lives together, and ideally, love God and our neighbors. It is this same devotion, care, and commitment that we are to treat and love others. 
The Ten Commandments can be divided up between the, the vertical love for God and the horizontal love for others. And Paul pounds this point home. In Romans 13, starting at verse 8, it says, he says, Owe no man anything except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Paul goes on in the next verse to explain a very important aspect of love. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, if I love another, I will limit myself and my own freedoms accordingly to avoid hurting that person. And that theme continues in Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. In Galatians 5, starting in verse 13, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For again, the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul extols and celebrates the great freedom we have in Christ, but cautions that we should not squander our freedom on our own flesh, but instead use it to serve one another. The whole law is summarized in love your neighbor as yourself. And here, Paul gives us a further insight into the nature of love. He explains that part and parcel of loving my neighbor is serving my neighbor. Now, how can we see this worked out within the church, within the body? Well, the, uh, the leaders of the New Testament church described in Acts wrote the book on church growth. Um, people joined their body daily, as many as 3,000 in one day. What was their secret? What did they do that was so attractive? Well, it wasn't just one thing. They called for repentance. They taught the word. They worshiped. They fellowshiped together both in a large congregation and in small groups in homes. And then they did something that in our culture seems rather peculiar. They began to look to the needs of their fellow believers, even to the point of sharing or selling their possessions to help others if anyone had a need. You can read about it in Acts 2 and chapter 4. Uh, but this was the New Testament church functioning as it was intended. They treated fellow believers as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the family of God. Now, in families, yeah, it's just a fact of life. We've all got to share things. We've got to share the house. We've got to share the vehicles. We've got to share the food uh, and clothing. You know, in our home, you know, it's... Uh, you know, the next thing that comes down, you know, and, and you guys have experienced the same thing. Uh, you share just about everything in your household. Um, 
Now, there's still such a thing as personal property. Just ask any two-year-old. And we've got to teach our children to respect the property of others, an essential thing for child-rearing. Um, we also have a responsibility, on the other hand, to help one another in every way possible. God's family, like our own, works best when its members look out for one another and share their time, work, even food and material assistance. As both Jesus and Paul points out, we all operate out of self-interest to some extent. And we are all tempted when we have something to claim it as our own, even to cut ourselves off from others, each taking care of his own interest, each providing for and enjoying his or her own little piece of the world. Uh, this isn't necessarily something sinister. You know, we, we drive our own cars, we dwell in our own home, and we wear our own decent clothing. Okay? Some of these things are basic necessities. And we have, in fact, inculcated certain values, such as self-reliance, personal responsibility, pulling up our own bootstraps, paying our own way, property rights. You know, it's the American way. Now, these are all good concepts in balance, in moderation. Uh, clearly, there is a somewhat unclear or hazy line when all this stuff about personal property and possession and that sort of thing can very well become greed. Now, having a short aside on our present cultural situation... Don't worry about all that because your government is now in a concerted effort to lead us away from this insular guiding hand of self-interest to a system of sharing the burden among all. Don't worry. In fact, the president recently told religious leaders in a phone conversation that we all have a moral obligation to provide for the poor among us. Hard to argue with that. Some questions. Who are the poor, according to the actions of the government at this point? Apparently, it's anybody who doesn't have what they say we should have, which is their assistance. That's how I would interpret the definition of the poor. And according to this view, who is or who are the we? Well, it's society through the government. And how is it financed? Well, it's with a tithe, of course. In fact, many times over, given by those wonderful, cheerful givers, the taxpayers. Sounds like one big happy church, doesn't it? Well, it's important to think about this. And be discerning because, frankly, most people are not. Sounds like a great plan to most people. Um, who is the head of that big church? Okay. When someone is assisted, who receives the glory? You know, if there's any gratitude at all, it's directed toward a government program. And if this plan 
takes full fruition eventually upon whom will all be dependent. Now, apparently, the Vincents are one of these poor family, families that need help because we don't have health insurance. Now, there's nothing wrong with health insurance, but, you know, we simply chose to be involved with one of these programs, voluntary programs, where Christians share the medical expenses of others who have needs. And we've had some pretty significant medical costs recently. And each time we got a check in the mail from another believer, including this church, you know, who received glory? That was a voluntary contribution to our need. It wasn't a government program. We also receive notes of encouragement and prayer for Jonathan's healing. You know, that's a great encouragement. Because these payments we received were voluntary, upon whom were we dependent? Nobody had any obligation to help us. What's the difference between what we read in Scripture and the proposal of the administration in sharing and caring for others? Well, essentially, the government wants to assume the role of Robin Hood. Take from the rich, or future generations, folks, young people, when they print money, to give to the poor, which I believe is a right-hearted yet wrong-headed approach. Think about it. Doesn't this inevitably lead to resentment on the part of of the taxpayers, the productive, versus a sense of entitlement on the part of the recipients, anything but gratitude. In other words, what the government proposes is that we create strife between classes. Instead of unifying, it divides. In contrast, New Testament sharing was completely voluntary. We give out of love and concern, not compulsion. God, in that way, draws us together as it engenders a deep sense of thankfulness among those who are blessed by their fellow believers. The spiritual Unity and generosity of, these, of those early believers attracted others to them. And Paul summarizes what this looks like in the practical application section of Romans, starting in chapter 12. And that's where we're going to take a look right now, uh, starting at the beginning of chapter 12. And not the whole thing, but a, but a part of it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, 
as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now here Paul urges believers to give their total life and activities as a living sacrifice to God. And the word body here is simply a vehicle of, of, of expression for this totality. This living sacrifice is, is a desirable response of believers to the mercies of God, which Paul explains in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Now, Mike's going to be teaching on spiritual gifts in three weeks, so we're going to skip from verse 3 down to verse 9 and pick it up there. Let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, sincere, real. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. In other words, part of loving somebody involves, like we, like we, uh, we, we talked about a few weeks ago, hating evil and embracing God's good. Verse 10, be devoted. In other words, that, the Greek for that word means family affection. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind. The Greek there means not being lazy. In diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Verse 13, contributing to. The Greek uh, koinonautes, which means sharing or having in common the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality, literally. Pursuing friendliness with strangers. Bless those that curse you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Being in harmony so that you really can empathize with them. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. It's simply a fact of life. Pride makes empathy impossible. Now, study that passage and see how that might affect how we respond, how we act toward one another. Now, is it possible in, you know, getting on this serving thing to get out of bounds or to get out of balance? Is it possible to become so focused on serving that we miss the more important things, the bigger picture? Well, yeah. If you look at uh, a passage in Luke 10, starting at verse 38, you see the story of Martha and Mary. Okay, sisters who are entertaining Jesus. And Martha is busy running around trying to do all the domestic things and and to be hospitable and all that. And Mary's sitting there just worshiping Jesus. Well, Martha gets a little perturbed. Um, She undoubtedly meant good, and she was serving. But Martha allowed the way that she was serving, the way that she wanted to serve to bring about a wrong attitude. And Jesus had to gently correct her. You know, she thought she was being kind to him, but resentment was building up. Hey, 
I'm the only one really serving here. Can't you make my sister get on the ball? In reality, her activity, her service, was insensitive to the situation and resulted in her chastisement. Martha certainly loved Jesus and intended to be kind, but she gave her kindness in her way rather than the way that he wanted. More or less forcing upon the situation whether anybody liked it or not. She produced an unintentional unkindness to the situation and to Jesus. So, in serving, we always have to be aware of our motives and keep the main thing the main thing. We may have a strength in one particular area or not. Maybe it's hospitality. You know, maybe it's in you know, uh, giving or maybe it's in some other area of service. But there are times when you know, we shouldn't beat the same drum. We need to be thinking about the context of each situation. Now, one of the purposes of assembling together as a body is to provoke. The the New American Standards uses the word stimulate each other to serve. In Hebrews 10, verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast, let us hold fast, the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I want to challenge everybody here and myself, to consider how can we serve others within and without that part of the body of Christ that calls itself lion and lamb. Now, it might be to paint rooms down at the rescue mission. And that's wonderful. It might be to do something as simple as make the bed of a messy sibling. You know, I, there was actually a, a, a fellow I heard who, who has a young boy had one of those. Anybody else have one of those? All my kids do. <laughs> and he decided that he was going to encourage his brother by every day after his brother left the room, he would get up and make his bed for him. And then a terrible thought hit him. He said, What if my brother never makes his bed? I'm going to be doing this the rest of my life. I suspect that's not what happened. Because when you're the recipient, eventually you're going to notice. For additional motivation, you might want to consider that you never know who you're really serving. Matthew 25 is, again, Jesus speaking about, kind of allegorically, but but pretty directly to this issue. Starting in verse 34, he says, Then the king shall say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, 
Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of these, you did it to me. Now, as we mentioned, serving others will bind us together. And therefore, I believe there's nothing wrong with someone you're serving knowing that you're serving them. That's a great blessing, and it does draw us together. But occasionally it's not a bad idea to consider an additional blessing out of self-interest, I suppose. Consider... Serving in secret. In Matthew 6, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, you've got the wrong motives. You're trying to do it for show. So when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. But truly I say to you, they have their reward. When you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees in secret shall reward you openly. Now, when we give a gift or serve in secret, nobody knows where it came from, and that's happened here. Who gets the glory? Nobody else is left. You know, anybody here been a recipient of that? Anybody have groceries show up on your doorstep? You had no idea where it came from? See a lot of heads nodding. The only thing you can do is praise God. So what's in it for the giver? Tremendous joy. Tremendous joy. Finally, uh, I think we've mentioned in the past, and it's just a a term out of logic called an a fortiori argument, meaning if, if this is so, then clearly this is so. Okay? If, uh, uh, if Arnold Schwarzenegger is strong enough then certainly Vincent is strong enough to do this. Okay? Or maybe it's the other way around. Yeah, it's the other way around. I didn't mean that the way it came out. I've got it backwards. Vincent, yeah, okay. God. I should have written this down. Okay. Well, Jesus did that the right way when he talked about uh, at the Last Supper, 
He paused and girded himself with a towel, took water, and washed his disciples' feet. And he told them, you call me teacher and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. We just ask ourselves a question. Can any of us say that service is beneath us? If the creator of the universe found himself washing dirty feet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you all the praise and all the glory. We know, Lord, that um, we are blessed as a body with many who serve, and many of those serve unnoticed. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the drawing together that results from serving one another. And how others will know that we're Christians by our love. And will be drawn to that love. I pray, Father, that you would help us to serve out of the right motive. To encourage others to draw closer to you. And for nothing else. Lord, I pray that you would help us to look for the needs around us. And try as best we can with whatever resources we have to meet those in a loving and encouraging way. Thank you, Father, for the saints of Lion and Lamb. Thank you for the joys that they have brought to our family and the way they've ministered to us. And help us always to be looking to you, the author and finisher of our faith. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.